Our New Testament reading today is taken from Paul's letter to Corinth, his first epistle, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 34. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that Christ appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under Christ. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected 
to him who puts all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and let us drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Fathers, we approach your most holy word. We, we yield and we bow in our hearts to acknowledge and to accept its authority. And we pray now for the gift of your Holy Spirit, the author of Holy Scripture, that he would apply these words to our hearts so that we can believe and repent and cling fast to Jesus Christ. Oh God, we pray. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of all of our hearts in this place, now, Lord, may they be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our only Redeemer, that we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> well, yesterday, yesterday evening again, I was out for a walk um, in the later evening. And uh, as I was walking about our neighborhood I, in North Glenmore, I, I noticed various parties on Saturday night. There were loud voices. There were people eating and drinking, people making merry. And while some of them may have been feasting in honor of the Lord's coming resurrection, Probably many of them were feasting, just feasting. Not thinking much at all about the glory of the next day. Not waiting in keen anticipation for the proclamation of that glorious word. He is risen. In the wheels of the world, they go round and round. All the motions of laughter and of dining and of hobnobbing and of making Mary without a thought on this important Saturday evening for the most important event that's ever happened on planet Earth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in our passage today, the apostle is writing to a church, to a people who are in danger of forgetting the significance of the resurrection a people who are in danger of living lives that are no longer shaped and motivated and moved by the resurrection, a people who more or less are tempted just to eat and to drink and to be merry. And there's a real urgency about Paul's letter here. For the resurrection of Christ is not merely a doctrine. The resurrection is the reality and the reality that confronted Paul on that day on his journey to Damascus when in a moment, 
in a blinding vision, the inbreaking reality of God's kingdom breaks through and he sees in a moment the glory of a cosmic king who even now is breaking through into this world of confusion and brokenness and sin and even now and in Paul's day is establishing a kingdom of righteousness that will never end. Paul sees all of this in a moment, and Paul sees him. And the force of that vision knocks Paul down to the ground, and it blinds him. And Paul never forgets the vision of the resurrection. It dominates his message. It dominates his life. You recall when Paul is on trial, both with Felix and Agrippa, he appeals to this thing. He appeals to his belief in the resurrection for the reason why he's on trial. The reason why everybody's so angry with me, Felix and Agrippa, is because I talk so often about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul is always talking about Jesus being raised from the dead because for Paul, the resurrection is of first importance. And you'll notice that he uses this phrase in our passage today in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul's reminding the Corinthians, even as he says in verse 1 of our passage, he's reminding them of the gospel that he preached to them when he first came. The good news that's of first importance to all. Namely, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures was buried, and was raised to life on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That's the Gospel. Plain and simple. First, that Christ has dealt with the problem of sin. He's dealt with the plight of humanity being separated from God, separated from the only source of joy the only source of light and of health and of peace, the only source of righteousness. Sin had removed us from the sphere of the presence of God, life and God, and sin had planted us firmly and inescapably in the sphere of death. Sin wasn't merely a wound. Sin wasn't merely a stumble. Sin was devastating. Sin had ruined humanity completely. And Christ's death, Paul says, it fixes the catastrophe. It fixes that hateful separation. Paul doesn't state here now how Christ deals with the problem of sin. He faces that question elsewhere. Right now, Paul is simply content to proclaim that his death does Fix the problem. For Christ died, he says, for. In the Greek, it's hooper. He died in order to deal with sin. And then secondly, the gospel consists in this. Paul writes in verse 4, Christ was raised on the third day. Christ died for our sins. Christ rose again. That's the gospel and lose either sides of the gospel, and we lose the gospel. And Paul is deeply concerned that the Corinthians are losing the gospel. 
Now, Paul doesn't expand upon the death of Christ, probably because he wants now to expand on Christ being raised from the dead, because that's where the Corinthian church is going astray. That's where they're drifting. The church in Corinth was losing sight of the resurrection, and Paul needs to bring them back. He needs to open their eyes again to the heavenly vision that was seared on his own mind that day on the road to Damascus. If you look at your Bibles, you can see the problem is presented in verse 12. Paul reminds them again that the gospel proclaims Christ as raised from the dead, but some in Corinth are saying that there's no resurrection at all. Now what this group is saying, and Paul refers to them in verse 32, they are the bad company that ruins good morals. What they're saying about the resurrection isn't immediately clear. But it sounds an awful lot, from our 21st century perspective, it sounds an awful lot like theological liberalism. Sounds like Rudolf Boltman. Sounds like Jack Spong. Those who posit that the resurrection is a winsome theological metaphor. Perhaps even a compelling one. But it's certainly not a genuine historical event. And frankly, that's essentially the portrait of this group that Paul paints. Paul very quickly connects the dots in their teaching, and he says to the Corinthians, if you think through what these people are teaching, these teachers are denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can see what Paul does between verse 13 and verse 19 Paul repeats this phrase in various forms that Christ has not been raised from the dead. He repeats this six times in order to summarize the teaching of this bad company. The resurrection, they say, never happened. But you see, the gospel only works when these twin affirmations are upheld. Christ died for our sins. Christ was raised on the third day. Without the second affirmation, the first affirmation falls apart. Because if Jesus wasn't resurrected, then he wasn't the Savior the Scriptures predicted. A Messiah who would rise again on the third day. Raised again in accordance with the Scriptures. And if Jesus wasn't the Messiah... He could not have dealt with our sins. And without the first affirmation, the second affirmation falls apart, not only because of the same reason of scriptural prophecy, but because there can be no future in God. There can be no future in God's kingdom unless the sin problem has been dealt with because Isaiah 59.2, sin has separated you from God and he has hidden his face from you and he will not hear you because of that problem of sin. And so you see what the apostle is doing. He is urging upon the Corinthians the unity of these two halves of the gospel, the hypostatic union of the gospel, if you will, that is two features, one gospel. And we are in danger as Christians if we begin to allow 
either side of the gospel to atrophy or to be eroded in any way. Well, that's not me, the believer says. I confess the resurrection every week. And I believe in the creed wholeheartedly when it affirms that Christ was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, was suffered and buried, and on the third day He rose again in accordance with the Scriptures, and He ascended into heaven, and He's seated at the right hand of the Father. I believe that, he or she says. But you know, you can affirm the resurrection. You can repeat it week by week, and yet that part of your gospel confession can atrophy where the vision of the resurrection has no shaping or decisive influence upon your day-to-day life. Paul says a lot of things here in chapter 15 about the resurrection. We can't possibly explore them all in one sitting, but what I do want to do very briefly is to look at how Paul lives in accordance with this vision. The vision of the resurrection for Paul is very clear. In verse 24, we read that Jesus Christ was raised a king to destroy every rule and every authority and every power to reign as king until he has put all enemies under his feet, even death itself. You see, the resurrection is the beginning of a whole brand new creation. A creation that's going to be filled with countless people, with Christ as the very first. And in that new creation, Christ is raised to this place of cosmic king so that he in his power can bring everything, everything across the wide universe under the rule of God. And few people have said this so well as James Stewart. Not Jimmy Stewart, the actor, but James Stewart, that old Church of Scotland minister and uh, New Testament minister or or professor at uh, the University of Edinburgh. Stewart writes this, he says, For the resurrection was and is the sign of God's unmistakable determination to make Christ Lord of all. And the concentrated might of arrogant iniquity is puny. And it's pathetic and impotent against the power that took Jesus Christ out of the grave. This was the conviction which at first launched Christianity like a thunderbolt upon the world and made its ambassadors superbly fearless. For the Apostle Paul, The resurrection means this, as Stuart puts it, it's the breakthrough of the eternal order into the world of suffering and confusion and sin and death. And Christ has been given by the Father all authority. He's been made Lord of all, and Christ is breaking through, even as he broke through into all of Paul's pain. And all of Paul's stubborn self-righteousness and anger and darkness. And Christ is breaking through even as he broke through into the life of a young North African named Augustine who just couldn't break free of his sexual addiction no matter how hard he tried. 
And Christ is even now breaking through as he broke through into the life of a young German monk named Martin who could not figure out how to stop hating God. Christ the King is breaking through. He's breathing upon the statues. He's making people come to life. And his kingdom is expanding. The permafreeze of the fall, it's thawing even now. And one day, through sheer power, the unrivaled Christ, the risen Lord, will subject all things to God. When all things are subjected to him, and then the Son himself will be subjected to him, that God may be all in all. One day, God will be all to all. And Paul, the apostle of the resurrection, he is utterly transfixed on that moment and he lives for the reality of Christ the King breaking through into this world. This world of sin and loneliness and death and fragmentation. Paul lives for that moment when sin will be no more and death will be no more and pain will be no more. If this weren't the case, he says, if this weren't the case, if my eyes weren't there, if my eyes weren't held by that vision, if my heart wasn't held every day by that vision, I wouldn't be dying every day. Now would I? I wouldn't be in danger every hour. Why do you think I do what I do? Why do you think I am content to be poured out like a drink offering upon your faith if the resurrection isn't true? Then I would just eat and drink and take my fill. For there's really no tomorrow of consequence to look forward to. You see, what Paul teaches us is that without a vision of the resurrection, without the weight of the resurrection pressing daily upon us, urging us from the passages of scriptures, the idea of the resurrection rushing upon us by the Holy Spirit. Without this, brothers and sisters, we can't help but only live for today. Eating and drinking and making merry. Basically, making the best of it now. But here's Paul, prepared to fight wild beasts in Ephesus, and we so easily eat and drink, and we get drowsy, and we sleep. And so brothers and sisters, the word of God comes to all of us now, as surely as it came to the church in Corinth, and the word says to us in verse 34, wake up! From your drunken stupor, the word of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ to his church this Easter Sunday is wake up. And Christ the King, he comes to us even now and Christ says, sleep no 
longer. I have risen from the dead and the spell of this world with all of its incantations and all of its charms shall no longer hold you. By my gospel, I set you free to belong to another kingdom, to look forward to another city, to labor for a better country. Pray to God, writes the old James Stewart, that the truth of the resurrection may smite you with its glory and go through your mind and your spirit with all of its consuming flame. Because only then, brothers and sisters, will you be able to lead others out of the torpor of vague half-belief. And so let me close today with Paul's words in verse 10. I worked harder, he says, than any of them. Why? Because Paul was stronger? Because Paul was more able? Paul says he was the least of all the apostles. But God, in His grace, on that road to Damascus, had seared upon his heart and upon his mind the vision of the resurrection, Christ breaking through, God being all in all one day. And so let's pray with old Stuart. May the truth of the resurrection, O God, smite us this day with its glory and go through our mind and spirit with its consuming flame. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.